welcome back to the Locked On Diamondbacks podcast. You're part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You're listening to Miller Thomas, the always wonderful, and might I add, handsome host of this podcast, multimedia journalist and graphic designer. Go check out my website, millerthomas24.myportfolio.com. On there, you can see all my latest work from my packages to my articles to my photos and my graphic design. For today's show, we got former sports agent Barry Axelrod on the pod. He even used to be the assistant GM to Dave Stewart and Kevin Towers, two former GMs of the D-backs. And now he's his own podcast host on the Blev Podcast Network. He has a show called Major League Beginnings, hosted with Mike Pomerantz and Mark Sweeney. So go give that a listen. But first, if your company's interested in reaching men between the ages of 18 and 44, your company should be sponsoring this podcast. Locked on Diamondbacks is listened to by 98% men and 80% between the ages of 18 and 44. So if you want men in that age range, this is your spot. Plus, I'll raise to the most reasonable around. Email me at lockedondiamondbacks at gmail.com to find out more. Now, here is that conversation between Barry and I. All right, got Barry Axelrod here of Major League Beginnings, a, a podcast hosted with him, Mark Sweeney, and Mike Pomerantz of the Blev Podcast Network. How are you doing today, Barry? Doing great, thank you. Nice to be on with you. Yeah, so today we're going to be talking some D-backs, some baseball, but first, Barry, I want to start here. Uh, we see the NBA, we see all the boycotts they're doing for, you know, spreading their message against racial injustice. We see a lot of baseball teams also today doing the same thing. Uh, we see the Mets, you know, what they're doing at their game. They had a moment of silence and then they stepped away from the game. They uh, postponed that game. They left their Black Lives Matter shirt at home plate. So for baseball, a sport that's only about 7.5% black, how do you think they've been doing in handling, you know, these social messages and, and promoting the players and getting them to tell their message? Because, you know, you look at a team like the Red Sox, they only have one black player, Jackie Bradley Jr. And he's talked about how hard it is for him to carry this whole mantle. So how do you think baseball has been handling it compared to other sports like the NBA? You know, I, uh, <clears throat> I talked to a lot of friends. I've talked to a lot of people I know, uh, uh, in and out of baseball. Um, I've had a, my entire life spent dealing with athletes and athletics. And uh, in terms of the way these guys react, uh, I think that once you become a, a teammate, you're a teammate. And it doesn't matter uh, your creed, your color, where you're from or anything else. We see it every day with the assimilation of the Latin players, with the Asian players. Uh, and black players who have been a part of baseball since Jackie Robinson. I, I think uh, once these guys get in a clubhouse together and band together, they all support each other. And I think it's been demonstrable uh, in all the sports, really. We saw what, you know, Gabe Kapler and the Giants did, some of the, the white players kneeling, some of them not. Uh, you know, I, I think, uh, I think the, the leagues have handled it well and allowing the players to express themselves. I think they realized that there may have been a poor reaction to Colin Kaepernick when that happened. And uh, I think they feel like maybe they, they lost uh, the faith of the players when they reacted that way. And I think they've gained the faith of the players back. I think the players truly appreciate 
that they've been given the right and the ability to uh, uh, to express themselves if they feel they should. And uh, I think that's a step, and I think it's a positive step. Mm-hmm. I would say I like how the MLB has handled it in terms of allowing players to have that freedom of expression, of being able to spread the messages they want. But one concern I would have is just the fact that when you let everyone, every team decide their own message, then you have like that Colin Kaepernick situation where every team, you know, some teams decide to stay in the tunnel. Some teams are kneeling. Some teams are standing. At least I like how the NBA is doing it where they try to have a unified message. It got a little bit lost yesterday because the Bucks, I guess, boycotted and took everyone by surprise. But they have meetings. They all try to have one unified message. They all try to do one singular thing when they – try to promote these messages. I think that a route that baseball could look at to help them a little bit more, just so it's not so much, you know, what one team is doing versus another team. And then it becomes like a competition of who is supporting the message and the cause more. So I think if baseball could just work a little bit more on, you know, having a unifying message across all the teams, I think that would really help just clean up the message as a whole. But I do want to go here. It, it does seem like the sport of baseball is dying among the youth. It doesn't seem to be as popular, particularly in those black communities. So what have you seen baseball do over the years to, you know, reach out and try to get more black athletes into their sport? Well, um, I think there are some inner city, city programs, the RBI program and other programs that are reaching out. Uh, I, I think it's difficult, uh, you know, uh, we've seen a, a tremendous influx of, of uh, especially Latin American players, but they come from a different culture where they, baseball is what they play, and they play that all the time, day in, day out, every day. That's their sport. Uh, that's not necessarily the sport of our youth here in America, having raised kids. My kids played, played Little League youth baseball, uh, but they also played soccer when it was time to play soccer and they played basketball and they ran track and they played tennis. And that's kind of the way we are here in the inner cities. They play basketball and they, and, and some play football and that's what they're drawn to partly because of facilities and partly because of culture. Uh, I, I just think that that's, it's hard to legislate who's going to play what sport, you know, it's kids are going to be drawn to, the sport they want to play uh, because they want to play it uh, and because of certain heroes they have and people they look at. And frankly, I think African-American kids are looking at Michael Jordan and LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and Steph Curry, and that's who they're seeing. And those are their heroes, uh, you know, uh, and that's who they try to emulate. So uh, they, they don't see as many of those heroes in baseball and honestly they never have uh, uh there has been a decline in in african americans in major league baseball but not, not as steep as you want, might imagine and i think the real change again is the influx of latin american players and even now asian players 
Yeah, I think I was looking at the numbers. They really haven't changed too much when you look at the amount of black athletes in baseball now compared to when Frank Robinson played. I think it's really just the star level of those black athletes. It's more you, – you don't see those Ken Griffey Juniors. You don't see the elite of the elite. You still have guys like Mookie Betts, but I don't think – you don't see as many Willie Mays in the sport as much, as many Ricky Hendersons. I think the top-level talent for black athletes is not as high as it used to be in baseball. I think maybe some of it just because of – unwritten rules you know you know you have a lot of talk about you know if you do a bat flip on a home run all of a sudden you're going to get beamed in the head on the next play and I think just the fact that's a little bit slower of a game it just doesn't resonate with the youth as much so I think baseball is trying to move in the right direction they're trying to do things to speed up the game they're trying to do things to make it a little bit more popular and quicker but I think it all just comes down to marketing your players and just letting them be themselves because I feel like that's the biggest issue uh, baseball has right now it comes it's the unwritten rules and not allowing these players to truly express themselves when they're in the field of play I think it's, those rules are changing and and needless to say I'm old school on this stuff uh on the unwritten rules but um players have a, a, a an ability a, a, a innate ability to uh, govern themselves if you allow them to do so uh you know if a player flips a bat uh, when he inappropriately, and I don't mind bat flips. I mean, if you hit one 450 feet, uh, I'd flip a bat too. You know, that's pretty exciting. But it's, it's, there are certain ways of doing certain things, standing there and watching it or taking a slow trot around the bases or doing things to show somebody up that, that uh, opposing teams don't care for. And uh, it used to be that there would be retaliation, which was expected retaliation. You know, if you had a player that did that, the next guy up was going to probably take one in the ribs and he would take it in the ribs and go to first base because that's, you know, and then he, then in the locker room later, they would have a talk and say, you know what, you keep flipping your bat like that in inappropriate situations, you're going to get one of your teammates hurt. So, you know, calm it down a little bit because, yeah, there's, mean, no, because there's no ability now to, to sort of self-police. Um, they get fined if they if they uh, exert themselves in a self-policing situation. And I think that has changed the game. I still look at hockey and say, you know, those guys, if somebody comes out, if, if one of the goons comes out and belts one of the superstars, I, I grew up watching Gretzky. If somebody came out and touched Gretzky, his enforcer was going to come out in the next shift and, and pound on somebody. And they, that's the way they legislated themselves. Uh, the sports are sort of, it's being legislated away from that by the powers that be. Yeah, because I feel like baseball is just a different – it's just different in the sense that a pitcher could get retribution on the batter. He could throw a 100-mile-an-hour pitch at his head, but a batter's not going to go out there and just take the bat and then swing at the pitcher. And then you see sports, like you mentioned, with hockey or basketball. You could do a hard foul on a guy and, you know, impose your physical will. But when it comes to baseball, it's really just the pitcher – attacking the player and I feel like those situations a lot of times are a lot more dangerous than we see with those uh, bruisers in the other sports like a hockey or a basketball so I, I feel like in baseball that's definitely an area that I always you know even growing up I was like you know made me scratch my head a little bit it's like how can you go out there and try to throw a hundred mile an hour uh, mile an hour pitch at someone's head and potentially you know give them a concussion or even worse I mean we've seen guys have career ending injuries or something similar to that so I think right. it just something that's definitely uh, difficult to police yourself on honestly well well don't don't get me wrong i don't i don't think throwing a 100 mile an hour fastball or any pitch 
at someone's head is right. That's, that's a no-no. Uh, that's not only an unwritten rule, that's a written rule too. I mean, you don't do that. But if you talk to some of these old school guys, these, you know, there's a, there's a way to do it. There's a, you know, you, you, you don't aim for above the belt buckle. You don't aim for the shoulder because if it gets away from you, then you are going to hit a guy in the head. So, you know, you aim for, basically you aim for the butt and try to hit him in the butt. And yeah, you'll leave a bruise, but he's going to be able to run down to first base and stay in the game. And you don't throw it 100 miles an hour. You throw it 85 miles an hour and hit him. You know, that's, that's the right way. The wrong way is to headhunt. And those guys are not respected, and that, that shouldn't be acceptable either. Yeah, and I agree with you on that. It's really the headhunting to have an issue with. If you're aiming for a guy's butt, hey, I'll let you throw 90 if you're going to hit the guy in the tush the whole time. All right, all right, all right. We'll get right back into more of that conversation between Barry and I. But first, let me tell you about Built Bar because Built Bar is back and even more delicious than ever. They already had 18 amazing flavors, but now they got six new flavors. Caramel brownie, cookies and cream, cherry barcia, lemon almond cheesecake, carrot cake, and apple almond crisp. Now, the reason why I love them because I'm a health-conscious guy. I try to go to the gym when I can. And Built Bars, they, they're great because they taste like candy bars, but they're actually protein bars. They're great for helping you lose or maintain weight while indulging in a delicious treat. The bars are low-calorie, low-sugar, high-protein, and high-fiber. So it's great for that keto diet. And right now, if you go to BuiltBar.com, you can get a free cooler with purchase while supplies last. Go to BuiltBar.com, use promo code LOCKDOWN, and you'll get $10 off your next order. Use promo code LOCKDOWN for $10 off at BuiltBar.com. All right, all right, all right. We are back and continuing that conversation with Barry Axelrod of the Major League Beginnings podcast. <laughs> Let me transition to this a little bit, Barry, because you're a former sports agent. You know, you had some big names, Jake Peavy, Craig Biggio, even the former uh, D-backs of the GM, Kevin Tower. So how was it being an agent? Is it the headache that everyone talks about? Because a lot of people, I've talked to some former agents, and they say it's not as glamorous as it seems on TV. You know, um, believe me, I complained all the time uh, about, about, about my clients. But I also had uh, the great good fortune of being able to be a little bit selective because early on I um, was fortunate enough to get some some good clients who are making a good living. Uh, early on, it was Ray Knight and Dave Collins of the Cincinnati Reds, and then Wally Joyner of the Angels and Rick Sutcliffe of the Dodgers, and then on to the Cubs. And those guys bred uh, or generated other good guys coming to me. There's a type. There's certainly a type. And and there were times when I turned I turned guys down because I would always check and say. How's this guy going to be? Is he going to be, is he one of my type guys or no? And sometimes I get a report that, nah, you know, that's a guy you probably don't want to mess with or I could figure it out for myself. So I was a little bit selective and ended up having the Sutcliffs, the Mark Graces, the Wally Joiners, the Jeff Bagwell, Craig Biggio, uh, Jake Peavy, Daryl Kyle. I mean, w wonderful people 
as well as being really good players. So my headaches were probably not they, – they, the people used to tell me I was known as the agent to the good guys, and I, I would always respond and say, well, the good guys give me enough headaches and trouble. I just wonder what the agents for the bad guys have to go through. But I, I, uh, I joke, but it, it was true. I had some really good guys who are, for the most part, still my friends and some of whom I still work with as coaches or managers or broadcasters. And uh, I'm just thankful I had that clientele. I wouldn't change a thing. Uh, there were some times that it wasn't as glamorous as you think, but other times when it was really fun and really exciting to be involved. Yeah, what did that process look like for you choosing clients? What, did you have like a graph, you know, if a guy had, was this much of a headache, then he needed to have this much talent? Were, were, you aligning, were you aligning with guys who had maybe more similar values and morals to you? What did that process look like? Yeah, personalities more than anything. I mean, I have, I have different players of different values, of different colors, of different religions. And, uh, you know, that didn't matter as much as being good guys. And I will tell you, one of the things I've recently talked to some of my clients and friends about, because I hear it a lot, uh, from baseball people. And the things that make, I mean, I have Cy Young Award winners, I have Most Valuable Players, I have Hall of Famers as clients, Rookies of the Year. The thing that makes me proudest when somebody says that somebody says about any of my clients, the two things, one, he was a great teammate and two, he played the game the right way. And to a man, the people I've mentioned, including my partner in the podcast, Mark Sweeney, he is viewed as being a great teammate and, and uh, always played the game the right way, had a tough job. He was a pinch hitter for the most part in his career. In fact, people don't realize that Mark Sweeney is the second leading pinch hitter in the all-time history of baseball to Lenny Harris. But he had a great career playing a role, filling a role, being a great teammate to the stars that he played with. And he's still revered for that. And the, those kind of things um, make me as proud as anything else. That and the clients I have who have received the Clemente Award for their work off the field. That makes me very proud too. And I have two or three of those. Barry Axelrod of the Major League Beginnings podcast with Mark Sweeney and Mike Pomerantz. Now, Barry, you're not just a sports agent. You were actually a special assistant to Dave Stewart of the GM, the, the former GM of the D-backs as well. So tell me what your role looked like as the former assistant GM to Dave Stewart. Well, actually I was, you're correct. I was. Uh, uh, for a year with Dave Stewart. But the reason I came over in the first place is that my very dear friend who left us a couple of years ago, Kevin Towers, uh, I, I represented Kevin when he was a player. I negotiated contracts. We, at one time, we had negotiated the two biggest contracts in Padre history in Phil Nevin and Jake Peavy. Um, we, we traveled together with our wives. We were great friends. And uh, I actually introduced him to some of the ownership of the Diamondbacks when they were looking for a general manager. And he ended up getting that job. And in the process, he said, do you ever get tired of dealing with these prima donna athletes you work with? And I, I was coming to the end of that part of my career. And I said, yeah, sometimes. And he said, why don't you come work with me? Be a special assistant. I wouldn't have done it for any other person I ever met in baseball, but Kevin was very special. He was an incredible 
incredibly great baseball man and an incredibly good friend. And he fit right in that role of personality and great teammate, great person. Um, and so I did it. I, it was a, a part-time situation as a special assistant to Kevin. And then Kevin was replaced uh, by Dave Stewart after three years. And I had known Dave for a long time and he asked me to stay on, which I did. And I stayed for a year with Dave and then it just wasn't quite the same um, uh, as it was with Kevin. Nothing against Dave because he's a good friend as well. But Kevin was really one of my closest friends and it just didn't, didn't fit me as well at that time. Uh, but at what I did, um, what special assistants do before I took the job, I asked around to a lot of people who had that job, Mark Loretta and Brad Osmus, friends in the, in the, in the realm. And I said, what do you do? And everyone shrugged their shoulders and just said, yeah, you do what they, you do what they need you to do. So for Kevin, I, I had some background in the minor leagues for Kevin and Stu. I had some minor leagues, uh, background. So I visited our, our, uh, affiliates at times. Uh, and obviously negotiating and arbitrations were something I had done throughout my career. So I participated in putting packages together. I know we were really proud of getting Paul Goldschmidt signed. That was one of our good ones and, and other players. So I participated in that part of it as well. And really anything else Kevin needed. I, I was in a lot of meetings with Kevin and Stu and, uh, uh, you know, they would, ask for opinions from a different point of view, which I had. So um, I, I hope there was some value added by being there. I enjoyed it. All right, that's it for this edition of the Locked on Diamondbacks podcast. Be on the lookout for another episode between Barry and I in the near future. Hope everyone is staying safe and staying healthy out there. Peace!